Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership Podcast. Real inspiration for real innovators. If you're looking for innovation and leadership transformation, your journey starts now. Welcome to the Innovation Meets Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bourne. Hey, did you know my new book is out, Set It on Fire, The Art of Innovation? Head over to setitonfire.co to learn more. Well, today we're talking to Dr. Ebenezer Icone. Eb is an AVP of Product and Engineering at Cox Automotive. He is responsible for leading the Enterprise Capabilities Program and organizing the development of shared technology capabilities used by multiple products and solutions. And what I love about what he does is he makes product development more efficient and effective He's also an author. He's on. He's working on his next book, which we'll talk about a little bit. And in addition to that, he's back on our show for a second time. Welcome to the podcast, Eb. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Great to be back. Well, you know, I, I loved your last topic that you talked to us about, and it's in our top seven of over 100 episodes, which I think is really, really cool. People loved your topic. They love talking about product development. Yeah. Well, there's so many people who do it. It's so important. So I'm, and I'm glad that what I said resonated with a lot of people. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to dig in a little bit today and talk a little bit about your leadership journey. Like, I don't know if we ever specifically talked about that on the podcast, but because we're an innovation podcast and so many people just love to kind of binge innovation, I would love for us to just take us through your career, kind of some of the, intricacies of different roles that you took on? How did you get started? And then maybe a little bit about what you're doing now. Definitely love to do that. So I started my career as a software engineer, and I tell a little bit about this story in my book, Becoming a Product Leader as well. So there's a, there's a chapter there that goes over this for those who might want to get more out of the story. But I started as a software engineer, and like many software engineers start, and kind of thought to myself, how do I become more influential in the org at the time? And what most people did when they got to a certain point in their career is they became a manager. Mm-hmm. And my view on being a manager was largely shaped, and I, I've been privileged and blessed to work for some really great people, but you know, you take stock of everything you see around you. And what I saw a lot of people doing was telling others what to do, directing, commanding, and controlling, and kind of being on top. And so I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do more of that. And this was at a time as well that when you kind of distinguish yourself as an engineer, kind of the next progression for you was management. It's not like it is today where I think we've woken up in the industry and seen that we can have people who can rise to very senior and impactful levels in an org as an individual contributor. In those days, it's simply like 20 odd years ago, it was either you became a manager or you stayed like, you know, stuck in a spot. So I became a manager, long story short, and I went about it the wrong way completely. Like I thought my job was to tell people what to do, was to impose upon them what I thought we should do. You know, when you're an engineer, you're really good at solving problems. And so every problem that my teams had, I wanted to solve it for them and then, you know, tell them this is this is the way you should do it. And so I remember my first two sort of reviews from that process were terrible. These were people I had great relationships before I kind of moved into this new position. They just weren't enjoying working with me. And my manager at the time said, look, you need to, you need to rethink how you're going about this and figure out 
a different way of just being the software development team manager. So that's when I really started thinking, well, what was I doing differently from everybody else around me? And I don't know that I was too different from everybody else around me, but I think because I had moved from a peer to a manager, like these people felt more confident in expressing their displeasure with my approach. So, but I'm grateful that that happened because if that hadn't have happened, maybe if they, if I had maybe been hired somewhere else into the position and people had been afraid to speak up to somebody, I wouldn't have started like this deep process of reflection and introspection on what it meant to be a good leader. And so that's sort of where my journey start, started. And actually what made me become very passionate about talking about this is because I went through a, like a personal transformation as well and looking into how I could lead differently and lead in a way that we could still get the job done, but that people would experience, like, you know, I'd say joy at work, would experience joy at work while doing it. And so that's sort of been my focus ever since. I've been really focused on solving business problems through technology. I've had engineering leadership roles, product leadership roles, product and engineering leadership roles, but I've always equally been as passionate about making sure we're doing that in a way that allows people to flourish, right? Most of us spend easily 2,000 odd hours a year in the workplace, some people more, yeah. right? Imagine having all those hours be hours where we're depressed, we're disengaged, which is the case for many people, by the way. And so that's just something that it doesn't sit well with me. And I've sort of committed my life and professional career to addressing that in, in whatever situation I find myself. So I hope that kind of gives you and the audience, a little bit of sense of my my path. Yeah, I love hearing this because I feel so often when people are thrust into positions of leadership, we spend almost all of our time becoming good at our skill and what we do, you know, call it with our hands or whatever. But the hard side of things, the heart, right? Yeah. Like we're not really engaged in that until we're we're put in a situation where we realize, oh, I went to go call on that skill and it wasn't developed within me because I've only had to worry about how well I code it. Now I'm having to think about how well I can handle people. And those are two different things. Yes, they are two different things that, you know, so the hand, head and heart are sort of the three dimensions that we all, we all use. And when you're a software engineer, as an example, it's hands on keyboard, your hearts, you have to collaborate with others, no doubt about it, but your focus is on solving a problem and sort of your worldview is largely around solving problems and that these problems can be solved. But when you step into these leadership roles, you begin to run into problems that truly can't be solved. Like you cannot eliminate conflict as an example with right. you on your team. That's just something you're going to have to manage through. And like you said, the hard aspect becomes you're really focused on people now because people are doing the work. And so when you're in an engineering role, maybe the, your focus is on your computer. And so your, your heart relationship with your computer is a little bit different. But when you move into this leadership role at any level, now it's about people and your heart and how you engage with them really needs to, needs to change, needs to shift. And the point you raise is very rarely are we prepared for those shifts yeah. in our career. What shifted in you in terms of values? Like, it sounds like you had a fundamental shift. I mean, I loved kind of some of the examples you gave. Like, you're like, I was telling people what to do and 
I was going around solving people's problems for them and then telling them how to solve it. And you know, people love that, right? So how did you, like, what were some of the values that you started to derive during that time for your personal leadership? I know one of those is Joy at Work. You have a really cool YouTube channel around this, but what would you say some of the things that that kind of sprung forward for you and your values were? Yeah, so I think I began to really think about my relationship with people a little bit differently, honestly, and where people had mean maybe being collaborators and, and people that I you know cared about in a professional sense. I began to really see myself, and this, again, has deepened over the course of the years to right now, where it's probably one of my very core tenets. But I see myself as a steward, and I see myself as being in a position to really positively or negatively impact people's lives by the decisions I make with the things I do or don't do. And so seeing the person as center to everything I'm doing has been uh, a shift for me. Then also considering the workplace, and I don't know when this light came on, but all of a sudden I began to really think about the workplace as a place where people can and should flourish and thrive and not a place where I just go to work because I have to pay the bills. And I get that that's sometimes the case, but like I said earlier, we spend a lot of time in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate when it becomes a place we're just there because we have to be there. And maybe the last thing about, well, related to flourishing and, and thriving is creating an environment where people can also evolve to be their best selves, whatever that is. So just, you want to see people develop and grow and kind of maximize or realize their full human potential. But then I also learned that, generally speaking, the answer from the collective is many cases better than the answer from the individual. Not all the time. Like we have some people who are geniuses and I'm not a genius. So my situation was almost always very clear that we got better answers when we all contributed. So the power of the collective was just something I began to really appreciate. Wow. I want to pause there for a second and dig in on the power of the collective, because when you talked earlier about the way that you kind of came up through leadership and what you saw around you, it was very, and again, I still see a lot of command and control type structures in place. And I, you know, I have great hope that this, style of leadership is dying off, but we still see it. We still experience it. So when you talk about the power of collective, the collective, that really goes against this command and control. I'm basically going to dictate to you what to do, how to do it. Talk about the impact that that has on an environment. Yeah. So I think the impact that that has is something you'll completely re resonate with, and that's innovation. Mm -hmm. Like, if you insist that it's going to be my way, I have all the answers, you've pretty much killed innovation. You've stifled creativity because you're not allowing the best ideas and the best thoughts and approaches to emerge to, to present something better. So I think, like, innovation from a business perspective, if we wanted to tie business metrics to this, you're really shooting yourself in the foot from the perspective of innovation. And when we look at the most innovative companies, of course, there are always exceptions to everything. I tell people this all the time. Yeah, you have the one or two companies that there is this grand schemer mm -hmm. who sits in their seat and they dream up everything that works. Of course, there are always going to be those. But most companies that are successful from an innovation perspective is because they excel at creating uh, an environment that really leverages the power of the collective and realize that everybody brings unique gifts and talents to the workplace. I often joke with people 
just in general. And I say, especially in our field where people get paid handsomely, they get paid pretty well. And I say, it's a tragedy that we hire all these people, pay them a ton of money, and then really tell them like, to a large degree, turn off your brain, just, yeah. just what we ask you to do, <laughs> because we figure it out. So you're paying you highly to execute our instructions. And I, that's just a waste of talent. It's a waste right. of human potential. Wow. This is powerful. I mean, when, when I just hear you talking about these things, I really feel like this is something that can be an epidemic is this idea that we do hire, we try to hire the best and brightest, and then we don't allow them to unleash their creativity, their thoughtfulness, and their collaboration in the workplace. And that is why I think we have that, that ability, right, where we're seeing the droves check out. I mean, I think about the fact that, you know, that I think that's why we have so many side hustles, right? Yes, people are, are doing this thing for you over here, but they're also working on what they really care about over here because they're not necessarily able to unleash that creativity in their work. Yeah, you're so right. Many of our environments like stifle, whether it's bureaucracy, it's levels of hierarchy in the org that you need to go through, it's always being told no. It's really, that that's the case. And so as human beings, we need to do things that we find fulfilling. So if work doesn't do it for me where I spend a ton of my day, I'm gonna find a side hustle, I'm gonna go join my local arts theater. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying like people shouldn't do all those things. Those things are important to do, but doing them because, you know, I can't get anything out of the workplace is just tragic. We should find ourselves doing a whole bunch of things. And each one of those things should be things that we really derive a ton of fulfillment from. Yeah. That's, that's so well said, well thought of. I want to switch gears a little bit yeah. and ask like, how is what's going on in the world around us? Like, how is that impacting joy at work and the future of work? Like when you think about generative AI and, you know, chat GPT, right? And you think, and I just, I just did a survey on my LinkedIn and, you know, over 65 to 70% of the people said they're using uh, chat GPT somehow in their day-to-day -day work. And so how do you see this transforming and shaping us in the future? And, and then how does that connect to joy at work? Yeah, so... Chat GPT or generative AI or things of that ilk almost always boil down to what's the overall ideology of the people using it. So there are some people who are just going to see this as a way of extracting more out of their employees. Now you can do more because what generative AI is helping with a whole bunch of things you used to do before. I've heard people have these conversations. It's interesting to me, like there's a big conversation going on right now. McKinsey published an article on developer productivity measuring it. It's gotten a lot of talk. You know, that's a hot topic for people. Mm -hmm. But I, I also posted on LinkedIn because I, the irony for me and the conversation and the backlash of the McKinsey article, and I think a lot of the backlash is warranted, by the way. But the irony for me was that on one hand, there's all this backlash of the McKinsey article, but at the same time, a lot of people in tech are talking about how we can use generative AI to improve developer productivity. So, I mean, which is it? We can't measure it, but we know we can improve it. How are we so sure? But that kind of goes back to generative AI and things of that ilk, really just in some situations, just becoming an additional tool for, for extraction. My hope is that it allows us to actually find space to relax and, and quote unquote, be idle a bit more or do other things that interest you. So 
instead of spending 10 hours on a task, what if you were able to spend six and use four of those other hours to do things that you wanted to do? But I'm not optimistic about that because in our consumer-oriented society where there's the pursuit of more and the pursuit of plenty, a lot of people see these tools not as tools to relieve, but as tools to help us do more uh, and take mundane tasks off the plate so we can do more intellectually demanding tasks, but still do more. So that's, I might have a pessimistic outlook to it. Now I've used chat GPT to help me come up with a menu plan for a couple. So I've used it for a lot of cool things. I've used it, you know, one of the things I use it for as I'm writing a book is just creativity prompt Mm -hmm. and just to say like, Hey, here's a few ideas I'm thinking about. Give me some counterpoints. Right. So I've used it in that way as almost an intellectual sparring partner, if you want to think about it that way. But people are really beginning to use it as part of their daily jobs and and how they solve problems for sure. So I think I've been settled a lot there, but I think it really gets going to boil down to how each company kind of sees the role it plays for them. Yeah. Well, and these tools are only as good as what we train them to do, how we train them to think. I mean, I, unfortunately I've seen a lot of people just using, you know, for example, chat GPT out of the box and not training it. And it's obvious, right? You can, you can spot it. It's all hype and there's no heart. And so these tools out there are just tools in the tool belt. And they're only as good as how we train them to think, to act, to talk. And so, you know, it's going to be a fascinating next, you know, several years to see how the government tries to regulate this, to see what other tools emerge from these tools. But at the end of the day, they're just that, they're tools. They shouldn't replace conversations. They shouldn't replace engagement. I like, I like how you said it. You use it as kind of almost like a sparring partner for ideas and things like that. So knowing where to place these things in our life, I think is really important to you and, and to like we said, we have people on both ends of the spectrum, right? People that are refuse to use it and people that only use it, right? But there's, I think there's some uh, answers lying somewhere in the middle, right? It's just, I mean, to me, it's an extension of the internet in some ways, but I understand that there's, there's a lot of argument that goes into it. There is a ton of argument that goes into it. And you raise a great point. The model is only as good as what has got into the model. And so I've had situations where I've been like, ah, you're wrong. Like, that that's not correct wherever you source that from wasn't the right place and so you can ask it questions but you've also got to be an intelligent interpreter of the responses it gives you because it's not guaranteed that you're going to get something that's actually factual or true and then this is not even taking into consideration like biases of the people who are developing these models and things like that so buyer beware or use with care is probably what we should say when it comes to generative ai and things like that so I would love for you to talk about the first book you writ- wrote and then just kind of juxtapose that with the one you're writing now. Like, how are they different? How are they similar? Is this first, is this second book an extension of the first book or is it completely different? Where are you going with it? I'm, I, 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 th- I think they're both the same. So the first book was really focused on leaders okay. in product development context, but really leaders in almost any context. I was just, I am most familiar with product development. So a lot of the examples centered around that and leaders, people assigned to lead. I, I often get into intellectual conversations with people about it. Well, everybody's a leader because everybody can influence. Okay. I give you that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that there's some people specifically anointed and appointed in every org, in every 
to, to go ahead and lead and be responsible for what's happening. And so that was what this book, the first book was focused on. And in that first book, I talked about what it means to be a good follower, even when you are an assigned leader, because everybody's following. Even the CEOs are following the board of directors and the board of directors might be following the stock price, right? Like we're following something. And so after writing that book and getting it out there, I got some feedback with a lot of people saying like, look, your chapter on followership was actually my favorite chapter because I actually see myself functioning more as a follower in my day to day. Yes, I might be responsible for a team. But largely what I'm doing is in response to what my boss or somebody else has asked me to do. So the second book, you could say it's a complimentary book to the first book, is really going to focus on being the best follower we can be in the workplace. Because everybody, whether you're signed or not, a sign leader or not, is in for all intents and purposes, is a follower. And, and how what does it mean to be a good follower, an effective follower? And then one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is I've discussed with a lot of people and kind of uncover a lack of awareness on just how organizations operate and how to think about organizing. So I, I think this is a book for followers to really give them the tools to think about themselves as followers, to diagnose and understand kind of the organization they're a part of, and to make smarter choices about where they want to work and what they want to do. That's so powerful. I think this is going to be just an awesome book as people think about the holistic, just kind of zoom out right of their career and all of these different facets. I mean, I wrote down just the pieces that you were talking about and how to operate in an organization. That's that's a big one. I was just on a call with, I, I have this mentoring call, about 20 women, and we were talking about just the ins and outs, right, of being in an organization and how to deliver an idea through and through with without being cut off in the middle of speaking without you know just simple things that you think i you know do we really have to talk about these things but in order to operate and exist and thrive in an organization you have to understand it's an organism and it has a certain structure as a certain way of moving and breathing and if we don't understand that it almost becomes like organ rejection right within that environment and so it's so important for us to be able to assess that even before you go into an organization and begin to work how do things get done? What are their ways of working? What are some of the common and uncommon things that you might see? And so I think it's, this is brilliant. I'm excited. And so is this second book, is it still within the realm of product and engineering? Would you say that's kind of the lens or the mindset on it? I think this book is going to be broader just because in almost every industry, right, we have followers and people like that. Being a product guy myself, it could be that a number of the stories, because I like to tell stories and kind of back my assertions with experiences will probably be centered in a product development context. But for anybody who goes to work every single day, I'm pretty confident that, you know, there are a lot of things that are going to be able to take to this book. So it's for followers in practically every industry. That's awesome. Well, tell folks how they can find you. How can they follow you? And then where do they look for your book? Okay. So I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Ebenezer Tony, you can find me there. I am on the, uh, app formerly known as Twitter. We shall not call it its new name. So E-I-K-O-N-E can find me there. I have a YouTube channel called Joy at Work. It's three to five minutes worth of thoughts on what each one of us can do to experience and grow Joy at Work. So take ownership. It's about agency. It's about our individual agency and how we can show up 
And then for my book, my book can be found in Springer. You can go look for it there, Springer A Press. And then you can also buy my book off of Amazon if, you, if you'd like to. Man, it's been so great to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us. Not a problem. Thanks for having me back, Natalie. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, thank you for joining the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. And remember, don't just get out of the box, but break the box and set it on fire. Let's go transform something. Thank you for joining us for the Innovation Meets Leadership podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Innovation Meets Leadership. And visit our site at innovationmeetsleadership.com for more innovation resources. Hey, my new book is out, Set It on Fire, The Art of Innovation. Click on the link to learn more. And don't just get out of the box, break the box and set it on fire. Let's go transform something.